book of Genesis serve as the foundation of the rest of the Bible. So what we're discussing here is vital to our understanding of Scripture. Both the Old and the New Testament are grounded in these chapters of Revelation. This means not only that the remainder of the Bible is unintelligible without them, but it also means that the remainder of the Bible in one way or another locks into them. Genesis 1-12, through 12, we find the major gear into which the teeth of all of the other books of Revelation mesh. Why does Paul say what he says about men and women? It always comes back here. Why do we do what we do in the church? It all comes back to here. Why do we believe about God what we believe? It all rests in the foundation of these first chapters. So what we learn and believe about in the first 12 chapters of Genesis are foundational to everything that we know about God, about ourselves, and about the world in which we live. With that in mind, let's look at the first verse. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Never has human language been said so succinctly, so much, with so many profound implications. God doesn't mess around in the opening lines of written revelation, does He? But these words, it is, as it were, He grabs us. He grabs humanity by the shoulders. And He looks with penetrating eyes right through us. And He says, get this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These words cut right to the heart of human belief and existence. This sentence establishes a touchstone a touchstone for the human soul. Long ago, a hard black stone made maybe of jasper, basalt, or some other stone like that was dipped into molten silver or molten gold. And as they pulled the stone out, depending on the streaks that were on that stone, they would test the purity of that molten metal. This verse is that kind, it serves like a touchstone that tests the metal of our soul. Every human being is tried by this verse. If you believe these words just as they are, you will spend the rest of your life seeking to live in their light. If you do not believe these words just as they are, you will spend the rest of your life trying to prove them wrong. Many people think that they can consider Genesis 1-1 and just dismiss it as so much religious nonsense. Don't ever believe them. The evolutionist... The polytheist, the pantheist, the atheist, the materialist, the naturalist, the deist, the humanist. There's something true about all of them. They spend their entire lives trying to disprove this first sentence of the Bible. And for the remainder of their existence upon earth, they feel compelled to justify their choice to reject the truth presented in this verse. For the rest of their lives, they, try, they strive to say, this is wrong. It's a chilling irony. If the Bible is the most read book known to humanity, which I believe it is, and if everyone who owns the Bible has read this first sentence, then there will be, may, there will, may be no written sentence which more human beings have ever read than this very sentence. And yet it is this very sentence against which cultures and kingdoms and movements and individual people have constantly kicked since they were written over 3,000 years ago. But if your heart is filled with the Holy Spirit, then these very words are words of joy and stability and power and comfort and hope. Through faith generated in our hearts by the indwelling Holy Spirit, we've come to realize these words are not wrong they're not religious myth or ancient fantasy. They reveal absolute truth. And by faith, these words tether our souls to reality. 
We've heard them many times over, but let's consider carefully what these first two verses mean. Remembering how foundational they are to our knowledge of God, ourselves, and the world in which we live. First of all, as we just think about the book of Genesis as a whole, it was written somewhere around 1450 B.C. by Moses. Uh, young people, those of you particularly in a, uh, well, let me say exclusively, in a secular school, how would you answer this? How would you answer the science teacher who, who says, listen, the Bible cannot be trusted. How can the Bible be trusted to teach us about the origin of the universe? Moses lived so long after the origin of the universe. And Moses did not have the aid of advanced scientific knowledge. How could an ancient shepherd living in the Arabian desert know the truth about the origins of the universe. How would you answer that? Well, first of all, when it comes to Moses and it comes to the secular mind and those that are rejecting Genesis 1-1, they always like to picture him as a, as a nomadic shepherd. But let's remember that Moses was schooled in the very best university on planet Earth when he wrote. He knew about evolution. Now, the evolution of the Egyptians was not Darwinian evolution as we know it, but it was still evolution. They still believed that eternal, uh, that matter was eternal, and Moses knew all of that. He was a gifted student in the university in Egypt. He knew what people thought about the origin of the universe. But how indeed did Moses know anything about this universe? Well, we must remember when people say that to us, that we must remember that no one was there when the universe was born. Not Moses, not Charles Darwin, not your science teacher. The only one who was there was God. And so everyone must seek knowledge about the origin of the universe from sources which are made available long after the fact. Now Moses obviously is not reporting what he saw. He's not writing about what he imagined. He writes down what God revealed to him. The answer to a science teacher who would pose it that way is very simply divine revelation. God reveals truth. Now, of course, your science teacher can't believe that because you're, if, if he believes in evolution because your science teacher can't believe in miracles. He can believe the world just came from a blow-up that happened we don't know how and that all of life came from single-celled creatures that kind of divided and everything just happened to work out real well and here we are, but he can't believe in a miracle. But the answer still is divine revelation. God reveals truth. The evolutionist rejects revelation and appeals to what? Not to the origin. He, he wasn't there either. So the evolutionist appeals to creation itself. Creation itself is tested with various hypotheses. There's one problem among many, that there is an infinite amount of data and an infinite number of hypotheses. Mankind together is simply incapable of testing any single hypothesis thoroughly. I am, I am absolutely convinced as I read not only Christian authors but secular authors, I believe Darwinian evolution as a theory is doomed. I, I don't think it's going to last very long. There is so much coming out as we learn more scientifically, as our abilities are increasing to learn about the, cre the creation. I don't think it's going to last, and I would not be surprised if in our lifetime a different theory is proposed. That would be a major shift. It would cause 
cataclysmic problems to our social structure, but it could happen because it's a bankrupt system. And there are today evolution, or let's say atheistic scientists who are saying this doesn't work. It might crumble, but you know what's going to happen when it does? Are people going to turn to the Bible and say God created the world after all? No. They're just going to come up with another hypothesis. And because the data is far more vast than we can ever put together, they'll never get to the end of proving it true or proving it false. They're going to believe what they want to believe, but they can't prove the theory. Moses got his answers not simply from the creation and not based on a hypothesis that he pretended he could test over a long period of time. Moses got his answers from the Creator. Adam and Eve knew how the world was created, and this knowledge was passed down from one generation to the next, but it became uh, desperately distorted. The Babylonians, for instance, recorded their version of creation in the epic myth Enuma Elish. In this epic, the evil ocean goddess Tiamat rebels against the supreme god Anu, but Marduk comes to Anu's aid, kills Tiamat, splits her corpse down the middle, and, on, and with one half of the corpse creates heaven, and with one half of the, corpse, uh, of, of, of the corpse creates earth. Two pieces. Marduk forms heaven and earth, and Marduk is not even the supreme god. Well, around 1450 B.C., God granted an eyewitness account to Moses through divine inspiration. He had granted an eyewitness account to Adam and Eve, And I believe Noah knew that eyewitness account after the world was destroyed and as he lived. But as time passed, man hates this truth. And so it became distorted. And around 1450 B.C., God said, let's put it down in an official document. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word Genesis actually comes from a Greek word, not the original language in which the book was translated, but it means origins. And we have in the book of Genesis the infallible account of the origins of the universe and planet Earth in particular from the mouth of the God who called it into being. Now it's interesting that Genesis divides itself very naturally into two major sections. Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11 records 20 generations of individuals and the consistent theme throughout is that they keep losing the Earth. Think about it. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden and they lose it. They get kicked out of that part of earth. And then we know humanity as it turns against God in Genesis chapter 6, the earth is destroyed and humanity loses all of the earth. And Noah's up there floating on water. He doesn't even have his feet on the ground. Earth has been lost. But in Genesis chapter 12, as we go through to the end of the book and really throughout the end of the Bible, the earth is being regained. Namely, what? In the book of Genesis, we have in chapters 12 to 50 only four generations. Four generations of very insignificant people when it comes to uh, world historians. Four generations of individuals and their families who are given the promised land, earth. There's a regaining of the earth that goes on. From Genesis 1-1, in the origin of the universe and throughout the Bible, we find this peculiar emphasis upon the earth. Let's look at the phrases carefully then. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, in eternity past, the infinite God who reveled in the complete and joyful fellowship of His triune being initiated time when He chose to create the heavens and the earth. Before the act of creation, there was no such thing as time. But when God created space, the heavens, 
and matter, the earth, he set in motion the phenomena we call time. God created. The Hebrew word there is Elohim. It's interesting because it's a plural ending. And this plural ending was sometimes used of individuals, but we know that's the case here because it doesn't say, we don't have these plural and singular endings very often in English. Once in a while they crop up. But in the Hebrew, this is very consistent to have plural endings and singular endings on their verbs, even dual endings on their verbs. And what we have here is a plural noun, gods, really. But the word create is a singular verb. And so it reads something like, the gods he created. It's a plural noun used of God. I don't think that it's really necessarily teaching the Trinity, though it certainly doesn't argue against it. But this plural noun, Elohim, is ideally reflected in what God makes. It's said that every artist, when they create their work of art, puts something of themselves into it. Art is interpretation. Art is a creation that puts us into what we make. Elohim, plural. You notice it? Creates heaven and earth at the beginning. We have this time-space-mass continuum. You can't whole time out of the mass-space continuum. You can't have one without the other. All three of them work together. And in this time-space-mass continuum, I think we see in Elohim the continuum of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It may not be a direct teaching of the Trinity, but it certainly does not argue against it. And we notice here as the text comes at us, again, it's, they're very precise words, that God is already there when time begins. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the Bible brings that out in very many other places. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Before you were. The pagans always sought to explain the origin of their gods. Modern man tends to explain away the concept of God, but the Bible strikes a bold note declaring, and I underline, without explanation, the existence of God before the universe. There's no need to discuss could there be a God or may there not be a God. I wonder, would you appreciate that? Two people standing right in front of you and arguing whether or not you exist? God doesn't bend himself to that to prove that he's there. He just says, I created the heavens and the earth. No explanation, but it was before the universe. Now, notice that word created. In the beginning, time, God, Elohim, creates the heavens and the earth. The word create is the Hebrew bara. It's never used of human beings. Humans are said to make things, to fashion things. And we can use the word of ourselves. We do create something. Somebody created some decoration or something like that. But in the real technical sense, only God creates this Hebrew word is only used of him. There was nothing, but God created something. Specifically, he created the heavens and the earth. I think we are to take that phrase together as one concept. We have here the totality of the universe expressed through its two contrasting parts, space and matter. Space, I think, probably includes, it would seem to me, includes the creation of the angelic realm uh, who are in the space who are in space, but non-corporal realities, and matter, which I think would include energy, the energy that's latent in all matter. We have the whole thing right here, don't we? There's no scientist that really could put it any more succinctly, any more carefully. There's no simpler way to encompass with words all that our ex existence entails. Time, in the beginning. Space, God created the heaven. Mass, 
God created the earth. The time, space, mass, continuum. All three distinct, but none of the three able to exist without the others. Think of it just in, as a race car. Different size cars, different length tracks and the like. But what's the point? Getting the car of a particular mass with the energy within to move a set distance through space as quickly as possible. Time. That's our world. Time, space, mass, continuum. And everything that we know in all of our existence finds itself in that circle, in that continuum. But notice that Moses does not actually use the word mass. He carefully employs a subcategory of mass, the earth. What is the earth? Well, when we look at creation, what is the earth? The mass of our earth in comparison to the planets and stars of the vast universe is like a single grain of sand in the Arabian desert. Our earth is nothing. But remember, we are reading divine revelation. God has something to say to us who are on earth. So he says, God created the heavens and we can't even begin to imagine the distance and the space and the size of the planets that are out in the heavens. And he created the earth. In Genesis through Revelation, there is a purposeful geocentricity. Geo-earth-centricity. Focus, concentration, center. There's a geocentricity to all of the Bible. God's revelation focuses not on the innumerable galaxies and infinite reaches of space, but on this little, tiny speck in the universe we know as planet Earth. Why? Because it is Earth which serves as the ultimate stage upon which God reveals Himself. The heavens declare the glory of God, but it's here on this little, tiny planet that God shows us who He is, most specifically. The heavens dramatically declare the glory of God, but it's here that the glory of God was shown in the person of Jesus Christ. It is on earth that Christ will eventually reign in his kingdom. This is center stage for this vast universe. Now, verse 2 says, it's critical to understand the text with that word, that word we cannot emphasize enough of how important it is, but simply in the Hebrew language, verse 2, which starts out with the word now, is what we would call a parenthesis. It's an explanation or as the Hebrew scholars would put it, or grammarians, uh, Bob disjunctive. But it just is saying, here is a parenthetical statement, an explanation. Verse 3 starts with the word and, and it picks up off of verse 1. So verse 1 happens, verse 2 qualifies verse 1, and verse 3 goes back to fill in the details uh, where verse 1 started. This is not at all uncommon in Hebrew literature. We looked at that in our adult class this morning, Jonah 3, 3 and 4. Zechariah 3, 1 through 4. This happened. Now, let me explain this, and then let's go back to where we were, and then we continue on in the narrative. So the point is, Earth, this planet we know as Earth, was just created. But Moses says, now hang on a second. Are we to get the picture that this Earth is created, and there's trees, and there's grass, and there's things growing, and there's animals running around, and it kind of looks just like it does now? No. Now, let me get your your attention here, he says, verse 2. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Notice carefully, verse 2, this explanatory statement has three separate phrases. The earth was formless and empty, statement 1. Statement 2, darkness was over the surface of the deep. And statement 3, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Let's look at those three descriptive phrases quickly. These two words, formless and empty, 
should be taken together. They're kind of one statement. In fact, the German language borrows these very Hebrew words and puts it right into the German language to speak of something in chaos. Tohu abohu. It's just they use it right in the German language. Two descriptive phrases which mean to us that the earth was without shape. It was unfilled with any of the beauty that we know today. It was in a chaotic state. As Morris suggests, the force of gravity was not functioning to draw such particles together into a coherent mass with a definite form. Neither were the electromagnetic forces yet in operation. There's no form and there's no motion. And we read in the second descriptive phrase that there's no light. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. According to Isaiah 45 and verse 7, God creates the darkness. The darkness is said to settle over the surface of the deep. God creates the darkness. There's a beautiful picture in the entire Bible. God starts it out and He creates darkness. The first thing is darkness. The lights are out. Where do we end in Revelation? The lights are on and they're never turned out again. He's moving from darkness to light. And in between day one where there's nothing but darkness, there's night and day and night and day and night and day as if the light is trying to conquer. And we have a picture there when we come to the end of Revelation that the light is one. Jesus is the light of the earth. And never again will there be darkness. But He creates darkness. He makes sure that when He starts it out, the lights are off so that we can come to see His glory and His light. The darkness is said here to settle over the surface of the deep. The Hebrew word means sea or abyss. Apparently water molecules are present along with the elements of matter. However, there's nothing there that energizes them into the sphericity that we understand and call, referred to as sea level. Uh, it's not there yet. There, the, the water's there, but it's not, it's not uh, come together. There's no form to it. It's still chaotic. It's a primordial chaotic ocean of water. If we get a sense of what's going on here, this is a frightening and really a miserable scene, isn't it? Water molecules... Elements of matter in a state of formless confusion, engulfed in absolute darkness as time ticks away. We might in our minds try to picture this, but we really can't because the lights are out. You can't see anything. And then we might say, well, just let me stand still and feel it. And you really can't because there's nothing to put your feet on. There's no form. It's all chaotic. The only thing that we can really do in verse 2 is maybe to a sense just feel the confusion. But the fact that we feel is because we have form, because we have a body, so we can't understand. It's a frightening scene that misses our small mind. By itself is the scene which could only strike terror and confusion and unfulfilled anxiety in our soul. Confusion, chaos. But you notice that third phrase? It leads into the rest of the Bible and it says, don't fear, don't fear. Because the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Hovering, the Hebrew word is used very rarely, but it's used of an eagle hovering over her young. As scientists observe, energy cannot create itself. And so it may be that we are to understand that the Spirit here energizes His creation as He hovers over it. It's foreboding darkness. A chaotic state of emptiness and confusion. But don't fear. God hovers over His work with sovereign watch care. And hold on to your seat, folks. Because a voice is about to cry out of the darkness. And the lights are about to come on. We'll pick that up, Lord willing, next week. But we leave the story there. Chaos with the hovering Spirit of God. You know what a tetherball is? A pole... A rope hanging down and a ball on the end of it uh, wasted many hours of youth for me. 
both at school and at home. We finally got one at home as well, and I love that game. But the tether, to tether, means that the ball, or I guess the rope, is tethered to the pole, and the ball is tethered to the rope, and so it, it, it keeps holding on to that pole. It swings around in a circle. But if somebody came along, it was always somebody else, it wasn't me, but some big kid punched it too hard, the ball popped off the rope and went flying, and it was untethered. It just went flying in the midair. It was no longer tethered to the pole. I think that's a picture of our world and the truth that we find in Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 is the pole to which all truth must be tethered. But we live in a, in a world that has become untethered. It's flying in midair. It has no destiny. It has no purpose. We're lost. It's a picture of our world of euthanasia and abortion and infidelity and dishonesty and war and greed and injustice and hatred and confusion. We've become untethered from our Creator God. So let me just for a few moments strengthen the tether of your soul by trying to draw out just a few simple implications from the text. So what? What does it mean that God created the heavens and the earth? It means, number one, that human history is progressive. There's our tether. We're tethered to that truth. Human history is progressive. Time is marching toward a final, ordained destination. Do you hear it? Do you hear it ring in your ears as you read the verse? In the beginning, it demands an ending. Things that begin end, as far as we understand. Let's say you're traveling down the road, you're on, on, on a vacation, you're on a highway, you've never been in this state before, you don't know anything about anything. And you come to the city limits of a town that just has a sign there and says population. Uh, let's say it doesn't say population, that will serve our purposes better. But you just kind of catch it out of your eye, you see, hey, there's Smithville, we're coming to Smithville, but there's, all you see in front of you is trees. And you realize that the town lies in the valley ahead. You've never seen it. You know nothing about it. But you've got to stop for gas. You pull off the side of the road. In the gas station, there's a little history of Smithville. And you pick it up and you read the first words. And they say something like, When it was founded, Smithville was a small, insignificant fishing village. Where is that leading you? That's leading you somewhere, isn't it? Just by starting out, when it was founded, seems to indicate that there's something else they're going to tell you now about what's true today. It anticipates a conclusion, some progress. That's where the Bible starts, in the beginning. And the rest of the Bible storyline presses human history progressively toward the destined end, which is foreshadowed by this simple phrase, in the beginning. It means there is an end. And where does the progressive drama of human history unfold? It unfolds on the earth. I mean, think about it. Even space travel is launched from earth, maintains contact with earth, and only a tragedy keeps every last astronaut from returning home eventually to earth. Sure, we can fly around in space, but this is the stage of human existence. In Genesis, we have the creation of the earth. We're then introduced in chapter 12 to Abraham and the promised land. And as Revelation progresses, we move toward the kingdom of God on earth in its ultimate fulfillment and to a new heaven and a new earth. There's a destiny. History is in progress. We're going somewhere. The ancient Greeks constructed the philosophical foundation upon which the theory of evolution is based today. The Greeks believed that the universe had no beginning. And they were at least honest to say then what it means is that there can be no end. 
Human history just swirls around chaotically. We're all headed nowhere. And today our culture is beginning to suffer the consequences of its increasing adoption of such a philosophy. We become untethered from the idea that history has progress. I don't believe it. I believe that God created time. He holds time in His hand and is carefully directing human history to the conclusion which He has ordained. So just as God intended, I don't see life as chaotic, as hopeless, as a restless pursuit of the wind. I see life and human history as a journey that will end in eternal victory and joy. In the beginning, God created. It says to us, this is the implication. I think I appeal again to those of you who deal with evolutionists at work or young people who are learning this in school. Think of this. The uncreated, eternal God created everything out of nothing. If you believe the Bible, believe that's what you believe. The uncreated, eternal God created everything out of nothing. Uncreated, eternal God. When time began, God was already there. He's thus eternal because he's already existing when the dimension of time started. He's in a dimension beyond time. He's eternal. I, I can't explain it. I can't. I, it, it, it makes my brain steam to think about it, but that's the thing. That's just what he's saying. We don't understand because we live in the time-space-mass continuum. We can't understand reality outside of it, but God does. He was there before the dimension of time. These simple words are why we're not evolutionary atheists. God created. These simple words are why we're not polytheists. Not many gods, one God. These simple words are why we're not Buddhists or Hindus or animists or native Indians, for instance. That doesn't mean that we hate such people. We love such people. But we must also remember that what they believe about creation is wrong. That's why we're not such individuals. These types of religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, the Native Americans and the like, uh, teach pantheistic philosophies. Those that haven't come to Christ teach pantheistic philosophies. God is in everything and everything is in God. They confuse God with His creation. They look at nature and they see God. They look at themselves and they see God. No, God existed before nature. He called nature into existence. This is why we're not materialists. Why worship money and possessions and things when you can worship and commune with the God who made them? It makes no sense. We're moving to another world. We're new, moving, to, it's the same world, the renewed world, but for, to a whole different existence apart from sin. Why worship the things God created when we can worship God? He created out of nothing. The pagan philosophers taught that history is cyclical and matter is eternal. A time-worn dictum of philosophers is this, out of nothing, nothing comes. Oh, that's not entirely true. God brought something out of nothing. I remember I, some of my research for my uh, thesis at, when I was studying history at the university was in this area. And I remember sitting in this uh, old library over at the University of Minnesota. I, that's not where I went to school, but I, I was over there studying these things and um, I remember reading all these Greek philosophers and how they were talking about matter being eternal. And I came to Genesis chapter 2. You're reading this for days and you're thinking about it. And then I read this in verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. That kind of sounds like eternal matter. God took that eternal matter and made something of it. My wheels were spinning. I was starting to listen to these philosophers and testing what I believed. And I thank God for Hebrews 11.3. It pulled me out. Turn to that if you would. Hebrews 11.3 were the lights. It's not that I hadn't heard these things before, but I was testing them. I was trying to understand them. 
I was trying to know what it was that God really was saying. And though my advisor didn't like anything that I had to say in these areas, Hebrews 11.3 was my rescue. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord and God, for you created all things, and by your will they were created. By your will, he chose it. Out of nothing came the world that we know. Principle number three, this is obvious, but I, I need to say it. God reigns sovereignly over his creation. We learned that in these two verses. There's two basic approaches to denying this truth, pantheism and deism. Deism says there's a God, but he's entirely removed from the universe. This philosophy neatly leaves man as the ruler of the universe. God got it started, but now we're here. And that's, I think, where many Americans are, because that's where many of our founding fathers were. They didn't believe in the Lord, of Je Lord Jesus Christ. They believed in a God who kind of started the whole thing and then took off. And they talk a lot about God, but many of them, that's the God they're talking about. One who's uninvolved, one who's not here, one who's gone. And that's the practical atheism with which many of us live. How many evolutionists say, yeah, I believe there's a God? Lots of them. They're not being very accurate, very reasonable, but they believe there's a God. They just, we just don't bother with him. He's gone. He's out of the picture. We're God. Now, there's a lot of forms of that. And there's a lot of forms of the second basic approach, and that's pantheism. The nature of God is everywhere and in everything. This philosophy safely divests God of his power and his holiness, his uniqueness. And it says again, I am God. Because I'm part of creation, and God is part of creation, so I'm God as well. And there we have our Eastern religions, and we have the New Age movement and the like. All of it is this violent desire to prove Genesis 1-1 wrong so that we can rule on earth instead of God. God is intimately involved in, a, in this world that he brought into existence out of nothing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, By him all things were created. Verse 17 says this, He is before all things. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together or consist. They're glued together. There's a force which holds everything together. The scientists know it, and they also admit they don't know what in the world it is that keeps us from just flying apart. Colossians 1.17 tells us Jesus holds it all together. He made it, and he keeps it together. Genesis 1.2 anticipates Colossians 1.17 as we see the Spirit of God hovering over the chaotic elements that he's created. And we must not forget that the God who called the world into existence and energized it is still hovering over his creation. Christian, there's times when your life seems to be in chaos. There may be times when there seems to be no light in your world. Maybe that's where you are even today. But from the very beginning to the very end, we must remember our God reigns over all he created. He's not forgotten. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never ever leave you. I will never ever forsake you. He still hovers. In a real sense, the God who called the worlds into existence hovers over you as he indwells you, Christian. He's not weak and incapable of rescuing you. Jeremiah 32, 17 says there's nothing too hard for God. One last principle, and that is this. Again, obvious, meshes into the last one, but I think it needs to be said. It's an implication, and that is this. God is the ultimate reality. You're either walking with ultimate reality or against it. The existence, sustenance, and energization of the universe is caused by God. There's no dualism out there. God did not defeat the darkness. He created it. God did not defeat evil. 
He did not win out over chaos in this cosmic battle. God created the universe and He hovers over the chaos with omnipotent, omniscient watch care in verse 2. In fact, every human philosophy which is not directly biblical is destroyed by Genesis 1.1. Morris puts it well when he says, Dualism is a summary of polytheism, which is the popular expression of pantheism which presupposes materialism, which functions in terms of evolutionism, which finds its consummation in humanism, which culminates in atheism. I'll give you that if you need to think about it again like I did about 14 times, but he says it well. In other words, it's all part of the same mix. It says to Genesis 1-1, no, we don't want it. It all says that man is the ultimate reality. I can determine what's best for me. I'm the master of my soul. And from Immanuel Kant and following, we have even come to the place of such pride that we say we are determining what science is and what the earth is. That's a long story as well. But let us just say, no, we're not. And the only true joy in life is found by those who realize that God is our ultimate environment and walking in sync with Him is the only fulfilling course of human action. Everything we do and think and plan and feel is tethered to our belief in or our rejection of Genesis 1-1 and the God revealed therein. Let me summarize them, state them one more time. Human history is progressive. Time is marching toward a final ordained destination. Number two, the uncreated eternal God created everything out of nothing. Number three, God reigns sovereignly over his creation. And number four, God is the ultimate reality. You're either walking with him or you're walking against. Father, we thank you for these profound words. 